Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. What is up listeners? Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast coming at you, well at least coming at you, being recorded on Sunday the 13th of September My name is Dion Gribben and this is actually episode 28, the Harpoon edition. And we have a lot to talk about this week. We will touch a little bit more on some buy now, pay later related stuff that was in the news. We're going to talk about Maya, which was also in the news for their full financial year results. Not a great, not a great one there. And the fascinating story regarding a one NASDAQ whale, which has been in the news and you may have heard of in regards to some of those big share price surges that we've seen as of late. But we're going to kick it off first and take a look at the week that was. It wasn't a pretty week, but let's jump in and see how the markets went. The ASX 200 was down uh, 1.1% over the week, which, I mean, mean, being in the week itself, it felt like it was going to be down a lot more than that, but it was down 1.1% across the board for the ASX 200. The S&P 500 in the US fared a little bit worse. It was down 2.5% and by by all measures, the NASDAQ was down about just over 4.1%. So much worse there on the NASDAQ. And I think it might be good to expand this week from just sort of the weekly numbers and see where we sit in the big picture as it's kind of easy to sort of lose sight of that when we just talk weekly numbers all the time. And you may have sort of picked up from back-to-back episodes now that it's kind of been a rough few weeks for our Australian markets and this week was actually the fourth straight drop overall for the ASX 200 index in terms of where we are from the low that the market experienced in March where we're still we're still about 29% up from that lowest point in March but really the story since about the 1st of July when the financial year started anew is one where the market's basically kind of traded sideways that whole time so that sort of momentum that we picked up out of those March lows, they have really slowed right down. And sort of financial year to date, the Aussie market is down slightly. It's down about 0.7%. And in the US, the story has overall been much more positive across the same timelines, although there has been a decent pullback in the last week or so. The NASDAQ specifically kind of copping most of the heat as the pullback has been heightened among technology stocks. The NASDAQ has kind of technically had a bit of a correction, which is officially recorded when there's been a 10% drop from the most recent highs. But for sort of context though, the NASDAQ 100 is still well above the point it was right before the actual market crashes in sort of February, March due to the COVID. And even after these latest drops in the last week or so, it's still a good 14% above the point it was right before the market actually pulled back due to COVID. So it's sort of the bigger picture is that it's still doing more than fine for the year that it was. And I mean, should it should it be really? Is the world economy really doing much better than it was, say, back in February? Probably not. But markets are not always or not really ever a reflection of, say, economic health. And again, much of this sort of movement is driven by the big tech names like Apple and Amazon. And this week, the biggest drivers of the NASDAQ, but in the opposite way, which is Going down were shares like Apple and Netflix. They were both down just over 6.5% for their entire week. Facebook, not as bad, but down 5.7%. And a similar drop for sort of Amazon, 
Google closer to about 4.4%. So not a great time for those right now. And at the tail end of the show, we're going to get into a bit of a story that's been circulating over the last five days that kind of speaks to why this is. And we look at the S&P 500, which is this sort of big primary US benchmark index and kind of, of, of recent fame for snubbing Tesla from the index, which caused a lot, of, a lot of drama among shareholders. The S&P 500 is basically back to where it was right before the market sort of started to fall off in February and March uh, due to the COVID pandemic. And so you could see that sort of drop below those levels if this current sort of sell-off that's been happening over the last week or so continues in the next few weeks. And there's kind of a lot of different stuff driving the sort of recent performance overall on the market and a, a sort of good point of reference to summarize what all these drivers are, or at least what I think, is there was the Comsec Week in Review podcast that they do every week. They posted it on sort of Friday uh, afternoon, evening. So and that was on September 11th. Um, so Stephen Daglin does a good summary of some of the drivers. Well, I believe he named about seven or eight that, that are sort of affecting the market at the moment. But I'll touch on a couple, not all of them, but the vaccine in development out of Oxford. And this is probably, you definitely would have been over this in the news this week. And you, you kind of might refer hear this referred to as the Oxford vaccine or the Oxford trial, but it's done with a pharmaceutical company called AstraZeneca. So this week the news broke, uh, well, the New York Times reported that a media site called Stat, which falls under the Boston Globe, broke the news that the trial being conducted by AstraZeneca has kind of had to actually hit the pause button for a moment. And this was due to one of the participants actually having an adverse reaction. And as far as I've sort of read, there's not much details beyond that in terms of what happened to that person, how bad it was, whether this was directly correlated to the vaccine itself. I think some of that are unknowns and I'm, I'm sure we'll find out as the days go on. But this news broke very quickly in being one of the key trials in the world right now. This Oxford one, the markets have obviously seen this as a potential setback because if it turns out to be a bit of a deal breaker for the current vaccine trials, they might be forced to sort of restart trials or restart research and potentially delay the overall availability of a vaccine for COVID-19. And I saw an interesting take from uh, Jonathan Webb, who wrote an article for ABC News, who's one of the science writers there. He's kind of pointed out how unusual this situation is for vaccine development, because what happened, well, this kind of stuff does actually happen all the time in trials. And this is why they do trials and all this kind of stuff. And But just because of the amount of attention this specific study is being given you know, due to what's riding on it, of course, as you can imagine, the story just blew up so quickly and it's, it's got such a spotlight on it, which is kind of unusual for sort of normal medical trials and vaccine trials that aren't so, I guess, put on the pedestal that this one is. And a couple other things that sort of played on market nerves this week, specifically more the Wall Street side of the fence, which does ultimately put pressure on our domestic markets. But the US Senate actually did block a sort of latest coronavirus rescue package that came from Republicans in the House. So kind of more spin wheels and uncertainty in terms of what sort of, in terms of what sort of future support will come from the federal government. And the US West Coast is on fire right now. I mean, your scenes look remarkably familiar to some of the images we saw in Australia late 2019, early 2020. Apparently, apparently 10% of the population of the state of Oregon was forced to evacuate their homes, 10% of the entire state is insane. So there is, what I'm kind of trying to get at there is not really a lot of positive indicators for the market to grab a hold of right now. 
But let's jump into some domestic news. And I did say at the top, we're going to talk a little bit about buy now, pay later. I've harped on this sector uh, for different reasons over the last couple of podcasts, but the, the sort of most recent sort of big news being that PayPal entered the game as a competitor, now offering installment payment options for PayPal users. But this week, in terms of competition, there was more news, but it actually came from our big four banks. Specifically, it was NAB and then ComBank followed suit very quickly, announcing a very similar product. And this was a no-interest credit card. The, the limits are low. For example, the NAB, the NAB card is called the straight-up credit card and can have a limit up to $3,000 and it has a zero interest rate. ComBank came out just behind them, I think, within the next 24 hours with their ComBank Neo card on a very similar note saying it'll have up to $3,000 limit. Now, I'm not going to venture into the weeds on these products as their kicker is that they do have a monthly fee and that appears to be different depending on your credit limit on the card. And it does actually appear to only factor in when you use the card or, or owe something on it for the month. But I guess the, the point around this is a bit more pressure in terms of product offering on the buy now, pay later space. I don't know. I, I, I sort of didn't see this as being a, as big a deal as the PayPal news from the other week. I'm, I'm sort I'm, I've only been digesting this over the last couple of days, but I'm kind of yet to be convinced that this will prove to be some kind of nail in the coffin for buy now, pay later. Certainly it ramps up just the alternative product offering that may sway consumers who you know, don't want to be bogged down by a high interest credit card. On the other hand, if you owe a, a grand or so on this card for a whole year and pay a monthly fee you know, 12 times for the 12 months of the year, you could technically think that think of that as interest, right? You can work out what that would be as an effective interest rate. Just because it's a sort of low monthly fee doesn't mean that you can't think of it like that. But it's almost like this is more competing with traditional credit cards as opposed to buy now pay later I don't know but but it's all very timely because the Reserve Bank of Australia figures show that about, about almost 400,000 credit cards were closed from March to July in Australia so overall card numbers they're apparently down at the same point they were in 2009 in Australia and granted there might be some rub from the current economic situation in those figures because people tend to not only cut back on their spending during uncertain times, but they also review and consolidate finances, close accounts that might be, or pay off those debts um, if they feel like it might be too risky to hold on. And that definitely would be a thing. But again, broader trend, credit card usage in decline. The banks know that, of course, they're acknowledging that this is to be expected. But I'm sort of no doubt ANZ and Westpac will be rolling out their own versions of the same thing that they tend to... uh, it reminds me of when they they cut ATM fees and they all sort of like followed suit pretty quickly after each other. But yeah, so there is a bit of that side of sort of increased pressure or intensity of competition from buy now, pay later. But on the other on the hand, the industry is more recognized now by big players, which we sp- spoke about the other week. And I'm going to be interested to see how these new products actually perform for the banks. I think now I sort of maintain a healthy skepticism towards these no, new no interest credit cards popularity, but I'm I'm the guy who didn't really understand Afterpay a few years ago until it was like really started to blow up. And so don't listen to me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And in other news, it was not a good week at all for shareholders of Maya. I mean, has it ever really been a good week for shareholders of Maya? Really? Probably not. On Thursday, Maya released its full year 2020 results to the market and it, again, wasn't the prettiest of sites. I don't think really anyone expected it to be pretty, but I think worth mentioning 
I've never actually invested in a retail company. That doesn't mean really anything because for every mire on the market, you also have a Kogan and a Temple of Webster, which they do quite well. And especially during this period, they've actually managed to do really well as well. So um, I've, t- I've tended to stay away from retail stocks, but one that I probably wouldn't touch is, is Maya. Now they released to the market, well, they had their investor presentation and financial year results to the market. The very first line was record group online sales of 422.5 million, which represents 17% of total sales. So apparently their online sales have shot up significantly, which as you can imagine, but then a couple lines underneath that, it's like EBITDA down 41.6% and a statutory, statutory net loss after tax of $172 million. So yeah, no, it's, according to the AFRs, I noticed that it was the second biggest loss for the company ever. And I mean, to be kind of fair on them, they are the type of business to suffer kind of immensely during the conditions and the lockdowns that we've seen because this is a very highly capital intensive business. You know, they've got these huge, large floor square department stores, lots of staff to pay. Apparently they had to stand down 10,000 staff during April and May alone. So, and when you've got this period of not just, we're not talking about low foot traffic or something, we're talking about zero foot traffic during a certain part of the year, then yeah, you're bound to suffer. I mean, Maya was one of those businesses that eligible to access JobKeeper. They apparently grabbed about $93 million uh, according to their financial report, but a business that's sort of designed to suffer during that kind of shutdown and a very ugly week to shareholders. So for the week, Maya shares were down about 20% for the whole week. And I had to go back because I was trying to remember their listing price because I'd forgotten that. So Maya was sold to, they, they were part of like Coles Maya Group and they were sold to private equity in 2006. So they weren't listed then. And then a few years later, they got relisted as their own entity. So in 2009, and that was at $4.10. And so for context, they've closed this week out at 22 cents a share. So absolutely destroyed those shareholders that still hang on. But yeah, a little bit depressing. But I'll end on something a little bit more lighthearted or a little bit funny, I guess. But I was reading just various news articles. There was one that from the AFR that had some quotes from... Solomon Liu, who is a very vocal major shareholder of Maya that you may have heard of. I think, well, his position in Maya, I think he has about a 10% stake, but it's actually under Premier Investments, which is a different listed company of his. Premier Investments, a big retail investor. They ha- did they do actually have some good names that we've spoken about before in the podcast, like Peter Alexander for, uh, is one of their successful brands. But Solomon Liu is kind of having some words for Jeff Wilson, who is also a major shareholder for Maya under his you know, firm, which is called Wilson Asset Management. They, they, they offer like listed investment vehicles that you can invest in on the, on the ASX. But anyway, he was, Solomon Liu was saying that Jeff Wilson's partly to blame for the poor performance of Maya. And I think, and I think that goes back to when um, Solomon Liu was sort of trying to force changes to the Maya board, or he's done that multiple times, but tried to force changes to the Maya board a couple of years ago. And I believe Wilson Asset Management they sort of butted heads on the other side of the table against him because of that. But they they asked, they, the AFR quoted Jeff Will, or they asked Jeff Wilson what he thought about that statement or what Solomon Liu was saying. And he said, so he said, Mr. Wilson told the financial review that he could understand how disappointed Mr. Liu was given he bought in a dollar tend. 
while Mr. Wilson bought in at 40 cents. They both have lost money with Meyer stock falling 18% or 4.5% to 21 cents on Thursday. Further adding, no one is happy when you lose money and I'm sure Solly has lost a lot more than us. <laughs> so Jeff Wilson just talking mad shit there. But I thought that was really <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Oh my gosh. Okay, that was the week that it was from my shareholders, but let's talk about probably one of the more interesting stories in the last couple of weeks, which was, you know, a lot of it's been you might have seen articles. I know Zero Hedge talked about it a lot, especially in the lead up to it breaking Financial Times. I think Financial Times were the ones that broke the story, but I'm not 100% certain on that. But this revelation that Japanese firm SoftBank Group was this NASDAQ whale in quotation marks. And the term, this term NASDAQ whale, referring to the fact that SoftBank had huge massive options trading positions on those big tech NASDAQ stocks over the past few months. And this is what's been to help exacerbate those massive market movements in the US, again, specifically among the tech stocks, which is hence why you see the NASDAQ reach all-time highs and the NASDAQ do so much better than, say, just the broader S&P 500. And I'm going to caveat this sort of this next part that I'm going to talk about with a couple of points. And the first point is I'm not actually an options trader. I've never being an options trader, I have somewhat of a rudimentary understanding of options trading, but that's really as far as it goes. The second point is kind of there's a there's a variety of sort of good articles and resources out there that explain this story, but I'll recommend one because you can yeah you, know, you can Google search SoftBank call options and you're going to get a million different articles from places like Bloomberg or Financial Times that might be explaining it. But one one I found helpful was this YouTube video by Project Option. So that's the account name, so Project Option, all one word. Um, and the video was titled How SoftBank's Billion Dollar Option Bets Helped Fuel the Stock Market Rally. So it's very, this is not an endorsement of a channel or like some partnership. I was just saying this is a really interesting video to, to sort of helpfully explains what happened here and, and breaks it down to some really easy to understand examples. Okay, so having having said that, so let's maybe let's talk about what soft or who SoftBank are. And I said they're they're like a Japanese firm or they're a conglomerate, as you'll hear it referred to. But they're they're sort of they're sort of known for dabbling in tech startups and sort of pumping them up with money with a with a vision that they'll grow from seeds to beautiful flowers, I guess. Um, so they they're looking for the next tech unicorns. And SoftBank themselves are actually headed up by CEO Masayoshi Son. Or, or they just call it, sometimes people just refer to him as son. But now these guys, I mean, these guys know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> some of their uh, some of their their past investments include WAG, which is basically the Uber of dog walking. So it was like this tech startup. It still exists, but it's a tech startup that matches dog owners with sort of local people around that will walk their dogs for them or their pets for them. Hence, well, apparently SoftBank actually sold their stake back to WAG in 2019 for a reported undisclosed loss. But, I mean, who would have thought that was a bad idea? I don't know. <laughs> Imagine if someone comes to you with WAG. Anyway, but one of the most famous invest, uh, yeah, investments, or notorious investments that SoftBank are a party to is backing WeWork, which was, I mean, WeWork was billed and it was definitely hyped up as a tech kind of stock would be but it really is just a real estate company or a commercial real estate company that and they provide flexible office space for businesses and sort of startups aimed at entrepreneurs 
um, and they're based all around the world in various cities. So there's there's a few offices in Australian cities here. And if you remember, WeWork had intended to file for a public public listing last year. So they wanted to do an IPO, which and it just kind of all collapsed around them when they tried to do that because when you do an IPO or when a company does one, they, they have to hang their laundry out for everyone to to look at. And kind of what happened once they did that was broadly it was considered that this massive loss-making entity was there, there was not much clarity on exactly how they were going to turn around their financial position in the future to become anywhere near profitability. And so analysts were very critical of WeWork as, as well as their their sort of strange CEO, Adam New, I think it was Adam Newman at the time. But, but that's enough about sort of their investment prowess. SoftBank, are, they're in the news for nothing to do with that. They're, they're in the news for these call options uh, or bets that they placed on tech stocks over the past couple months. And I think it might be helpful to at least talk about what an option is. Well, first breakdown, let's talk about, so an option is a financial instrument. It's You'll see it referred to as a derivative and it trades over an underlying asset. So in this case, we're just going to talk about shares. So it trades over a share, for example. So an option, say an option on BHP shares doesn't mean you own BHP shares. Instead, depending on the type of option that you have, it gives you the investor, the quote option to buy or sell those underlying shares. Okay, so it's, that's that's kind of like that's how you think about the word option. So it's giving you the option to do something on those assets. So you don't have to. So we'll give a quick example, and there's kind of two key terms to remember, which is calls and puts. And a call option gives you the right to buy the underlying asset, and a put option gives you the right to sell. Okay. So let's say I bought a call option on BHP. Now this specific call option might cost me a dollar and it entitles me to buy BHP shares at $30. And so that's kind of important to remember. It gives me the option to buy BHP at $30. I don't have to do anything if I don't want. They could The option could just expire. I could sell it to someone else. It doesn't matter, but I, I have the option to buy the BHPs at $30. $30. So... And so your next question might be, well, what's the point of an instrument like this? And I guess for, say, a call option, like I just exampled there, if you believe BHP shares are going to go up, then this option that I've purchased is going to become more valuable. Because So let's say BHP shares do go up like I predicted and they go up to $35. I'm here still holding an option to buy them at $30. So not only have BHP shares gone up in price, but my option goes up in value because I've made a good decision. I've made a good bet here, I guess you could say. And so I could either execute my option and buy the BHP shares for $30, even though they're currently trade at 35. So I've just made an instant uh, profit on my BHP shares. I could also just sell my option to someone else. So my option value has gone up and I might sell it for several times more than what I paid for it because I gave the example that I paid a dollar for those those options just before. So I might sell them for $4 or something. I don't know, whatever. But the value of the option has increased. And this is where you get into terms that you'll see used in the articles about this story and videos about this story. And these terms are are called, uh, well, there's one delta and there's one called gamma. And so delta is, it's a ratio, right? So it explains the change in the option value as the underlying stock increases. Okay, so a delta of 
0.50 means that for every dollar the share price increases, the option will rise by $0.5 per share. So if that makes sense. So it's a ratio that explains how the option value changes in relation to the underlying asset, the stock in this case, changing, okay? But that delta is not fixed, okay? It's dynamic, it changes. And that's where that term gamma comes in. So gamma is the rate that the delta changes when the underlying asset moves. Okay, so are you following along? <laughs> it's all very confusing, isn't it? I recommend watching some of those videos because it, um, there's some sort of visual representation of what I'm talking about. Sometimes I can make it easier to understand, but but there's kind of there's one more point here to sort of understand the broader story, which is options are no different to shares in that there needs to be another party for a transaction to complete it, right? So if I want to buy 10 shares in Afterpay this Monday, someone in the world needs, needs to be willing to sell me those 10 shares in Afterpay, okay? So similarly, if I want to buy BHP call options that I just gave the example to, someone has to sell me the call option and that person will have those, has to own those BHP shares to do that, to sell me the call option because you know, I might execute on that option and they've got to hand over the shares in the BHP because I had the option to buy them and I've decided to, to take that. And the seller has to agree because it's a contract there. So now all of this is kind of been a very simple and sort of narrow look at options. There's much more to this world than I've sort of just explained. But the fundamentals I've just explained are sort of key to understanding the story of SoftBank being the quote unquote NASDAQ whale. And so I'm going to take the next part from the Financial Times, which is their article about the story. And it came out on September 5th. And this is a quote from the articles titled SoftBank unmasked as NASDAQ whale that stoked the tech rally. Okay, quoting them here, SoftBank is the NASDAQ whale that has bought billions of dollars worth of US equity derivatives in a series of trades that stoked the fevered rally in big tech stocks before a sharp pullback on Thursday and Friday, according to people familiar with the matter. The Japanese conglomerate has been snapping up options in tech stocks during the past month in huge amounts, fueling the largest ever trading volumes in contracts linked to individual companies these people said. So one banker described it as a dangerous bet. Thank you, one banker, for your valuable input there at the end. <laughs> so essentially, SoftBank have been just revealed here as the, the sort of big entity behind really big options trading on these US tech stocks. But if you remember, just before I sort of quoted that article, I said that options trade over an underlying asset. They are not the asset themselves. And so you might then ask yourself, okay, well, why does buying an option on, say, Google increase the Google share price? And so this is where it gets kind of interesting. It's to do with the person on the other side of this trade. So they're going to be, well, actually, they're not going to be a person, right? So in, in SoftBank's case, they're going to be going to some big bank or a big investment house or a big investment fund. Let's give them it. Let's call them Goldman Stanley. Okay, so Goldman Stanley sells SoftBank the options, and Goldman Stanley aren't suckers, right? They don't want to lose money on this, so they hedge their position, right? They hedge their position because they're selling the options to SoftBank, so they're kind of like on the other side of it. So they could lose money if um, if they don't do this. And the way they hedge their position is actually buying stock of the underlying asset that their call option is on. So that if it does start to rise, and, and they did, 
they can hedge their losses by continuing to buy sort of more stock at that underlying asset to keep up, I guess, and kind of creates, well, as the Financial Times sort of said, a classic tail wags the dog feedback loop situation. So the feedback loop in this case being, so SoftBank buy the call options on tech stocks and then the seller of the call options, which is Goldman Stanley, they buy the stocks that these call options trade over. And this buying activity naturally puts upward pressure on the share price of these companies and the share price going up makes the call options more valuable. So SoftBank is doing quite well and they might even buy more call options as it starts to rise. And then Goldman Stanley with their position on the other hand continue to buy more stock of these companies to keep up and keep hedging their position. And it's kind of like a wash, rinse, repeat situation. Hence the, the feedback loop example that the Financial Times said. It's a really, really fascinating story. And I think it's important to mention too that it's not, the, sto- the story isn't like SoftBank is some sole individual responsible for the, the entire market movement. It's not that, you know, if you've been reading over the past few months, whether it's Financial Times, Business Insider, Bloomberg, AFR, a lot of talk about what's called general retail traders. Yeah, even our our sort of regulatory bodies like the ASX or, the, or ASIC, or ASX not so much regulatory, but ASX and ASIC saying that there's been a higher input of newer retail traders joining the market. And so they, they're, this is what's called the so-called, or in, in the US it's called the so-called Robin Hood traders that are sort of new retail traders getting in on the action with sort of options trading like what I gave the example of there, but on platforms like Robinhood in the US, which gives, I believe it gives free brokerage to, to people who are joining it. But I do recommend go have a read about the story. It's very fascinating. Kind of will help to give you a sort of base understanding of not only what this news was all about, but some of the terms used in options trading and, and check out one of the YouTube videos like the one I recommend because sometimes that visual representation really does make it easier to understand. Well, that is officially a wrap for episode 28. Thank you so much again for tuning in. If you do want to support the show, tell your friends. I do love me some word of mouth podcast marketing. Alternatively, leave a review on your preferred podcast platform such as Apple Podcasts. Have a great rest of your week. My name is Dion Grubin. This has been the Market Pulse Podcast. I'll see you next week. This is just about how the past works.